0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Mark Sullivan, the co-founder and managing director of medicines development for global health. We're going to discuss his work that addresses inequities in global health. Mark obtained a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and microbiology from Deakin University in Geelong, Australia. He served as a clinical program head at GlaxoSmithKline in London, Associate Director Clinical at Gilead Sciences in California, and Chief Operating Officer of Australia's Vaccine Design and Development Consortium at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Mark has contributed to three successful global registrational programs for HIV and hepatitis B therapeutics, Has worked on 40 small molecule and biologic development programs at all stages and led the development of moxidectin through FDA approval. And that's one of the subjects we'll be discussing today. Mark was the 2019 Victorian Australian of the Year and in 2022 was awarded Officer of the Order of Australia in the Australia Day Honours List. He told me about a sliding door moment. He loves old Australian cars and at some point thought that he wanted to be a mechanic until a mechanic told him in no uncertain terms to uh, pursue the career that he was fated for. And we are certainly glad that he did. So I'm delighted to have you with us. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Sullivan.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. And hello.
0: So let's start at the very beginning, as the song goes. What led you to study biochemistry and microbiology and then pursue the career you pursued? The research part, first of all.
1: Okay. Uh, so I really started from that fundamental love of science, of, of evidence. And uh, it's something that I think it's an inherent passion that I've always had. I've always enjoyed science, finding out about things, exploring things. So that's the basis. And it led me into a a path of a of a science degree focusing on biochemistry and microbiology, two areas of of um, I guess you know real structure in biochemistry and a lack of structure in microbiology, and it's of that combination of of how to determine what's happening within a body and also the, the interaction of that and the biology and how humans and their pathogens interact with each other. Just those two things coming together were particularly exciting for me as, a, as an undergraduate. And,
0: and and subsequently, your journey into pharma, how did you find yourself working in the industry?
1: Well, I, I guess that, again, was one of those moments of, of uh, a little bit like the mechanic telling me to go back and do my degree rather than being an idiot and trying to do something different. It, this was one of those moments where I, I was drawn to... A, a clinical research role. I'd, I'd read a lot about what clinical research was and what it involved, and that really interested me. And, but there were a couple of other aspects of it that were, I think, a little less altruistic and a little less science-driven. One of them was that the job came with a company car, and um, for reasons of um, slight shame, I was very attracted to having a company car because I'd never had one before. Uh, and the second thing is that the job involved a lot of travel. So it meant that I'd be able to satisfy that other hidden passion of mine, which is to to travel and and see different things and go different places. So uh, so it had a lot of the elements that I was looking for and uh, a lot of the things that excited me, particularly around the, the science and the development of, of new medicines. Being closer to that point of impact as well was quite attractive. So that led me to a role in the pharmaceutical industry. And I was lucky enough to get a job with GlaxoSmithKline, which was really like a it felt very much like a a very large very professional university environment where you were incredibly well supported so it was a great learning setting lots of really talented people around me it was a, it was a great place for me to cut my teeth in the in the industry
0: so you are the founder and chief executive officer of the world's only, as far as I know, the world's only non profit biopharmaceutical company that I mentioned, Medicines Development for Global Health. It sounds decidedly different. Tell us more about the principle behind the company and its mission.
1: It, it is different. I, I'm sure it's not that original. I'm sure others have had a similar idea. And in fact, there are a group of Product Development Partnerships, or PDPs as they're called, that are out there really trying to fix the same thing that we've identified and we're trying to fix, which is that medicines for people who are in poorer settings, generally very rare, and, uh, and there's not a lot of attention given to them. And, and perhaps there are other not-for-profit pharmaceutical companies out there. I'm certainly not aware of them, and I've looked pretty hard, the, the idea behind the model was really driven on the, on the foundation of, of what a pharmaceutical company does. It develops medicines. It gets them approved or not through a regulator. If they're not approved, then you move on to the next thing. And then in the, the pharmaceutical company model, it then commercialises those. It markets them. And, and that's really how all of our medicines arrive. I saw exactly the same model was needed. We need all of the machinery of product development to get a, a medicine to the point where a regulator can decide whether it's it's okay or not. And if a regulator decides that it's okay, then it's available for use. It's just that when you don't have that commercial outcome, that model fell apart. And I could see the need. I couldn't necessarily and I didn't necessarily come up with all of the solutions about how I was going to fund that work, which is all very expensive and long and you know, something that is, does require a massive commitment. But I was really driven by the intent of making a difference in those, in those diseases where you could see that a product could make a massive difference and yet no one was really doing very much about it. So that's something that we were very keen to address. It started idealistically, I'm afraid. And then we kind of tried to work out how the model would come together and how we would You know, fund that and support it and make it sustainable, which is what we've been working on. But that's the fundamental basics of um, how we came up with the idea, which is the need. The need is enormous in those low and middle income countries. The, The number of drugs that are coming through for diseases that are very, very tractable for treatment. So in other words, treatments can be developed for them. It's just that at the end of the day, the people who get them cannot afford to pay for them or they can't afford to pay much for them. And that keeps our current development structures away
0: well we're, we're going to uh, delve into some of the specifics it's a very uh, a very moral and ethically sound approach and I and I congratulate you for it so let's you mentioned regulators your company achieved approval from the United States Food and Drug uh, Administration FDA for a novel medicine moxidectin tell us more about this treatment
1: so moxidectin is Actually, it's, it's one of the largest prescribed veterinary medicines in the world at the moment. So, there are, there are there's a class of drugs called the macrocyclic lactones, which are really well known in the veterinary world as antiparasitic drugs. They treat worm diseases and they treat parasites that live on you called ectoparasites. So, things like um, mange in dogs and, uh, and in humans, potentially um, scabies. So there are a number of different diseases that these drugs target. Uh, One of the most famous of those drugs is called ivermectin, which was developed by Merck um, about 40 years ago and has become one of the most significant medicines in history. In fact, the the discoverers of ivermectin won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2015. So it's an incredibly highly regarded class of drugs, and ivermectin is a particularly highly regarded drug. Moxidectin is the same family. Uh, it's got a similar age. It's been around for a very long time, uh, but it was never developed for human use until really around 2000, when a group formed from the from an alliance within the World Health Organization called TDR, Tropical Diseases Research, got together with Wyeth, the pharmaceutical company, and said, "Look, we'd really be interested to see if moxidectin could have a role for the treatment of these diseases that ivermectin targets and maybe it could have some benefits over ivermectin and so those two groups started that work together back then we got through now to about 2011 and by that time Wyeth was acquired by the company Pfizer and Pfizer had decided it didn't want to continue the development for no particular um, specific reason. They just decided they had other priorities and they donate a lot of um, products already as etheromycin being a great example of that. Um, So their priorities were different and they decided to hand the product over to TDR in its entirety. And then TDR needed to find another partner and that's how we became involved with it. So moxidectin what it does is it affects the, the muscles of these particular parasites and, and stops them from being able to either feed or move or both. And in doing so, it eventually results in the uh, either the death or the long-term paralysis of, the, of those particular parasites and, and therefore uh, a partial resolution at least of the disease. It It's really very broad acting. So there are six different diseases that ivermectin can be used for and that moxidectin as well could potentially be used for. We're in the process of of proving that for the other diseases, but we are approved for the first of those, which is called river blindness. And that's a disease that's prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa, predominantly in the uh, coastal areas of sub-Saharan Africa, but not not exclusively. And uh, it results in really debilitating um, symptoms for the patient and it can result in blindness over time. And ivermectin has made a massive impact in that disease and its management and control, but we're very hopeful that moxidectin will step that further forward and lead to a faster elimination of the disease.
0: Uh, Well, that's absolutely fascinating. What what sort of numbers of patients suffer from uh, river blindness? I mean, how does it rank in terms of uh, as a cause of blindness in the world compared to things like, Uh, diabetic retinopathy or or cataracts or glaucoma?
1: Compared to the infectious diseases causes of blindness, it's actually the second most common cause of of blindness for infectious diseases. It's a little further down the list when you compare it to non-infectious diseases, but it is a pretty common cause of those suffering from either visual impairment or blindness. So I think that that's kind of been again greatly improved since ivermectin has come on the scene, uh, which is again it's around thirty over just over thirty years now that ivermectin has been made available and has, as I said, made an enormous impact. It it is uh, affecting still around between sixteen and nineteen million people. That that's the the numbers vary, and this you find this a lot when you work in this little group of diseases that have been called neglected tropical diseases. So people use that. The acronym NTDs a lot, um, but essentially the neglected tropical diseases. The clue is in the name that they are indeed neglected, and the reason that the statistics are not great is because the amount of research money that's available on these diseases is not tremendous. So we know less about them. We know less about their distribution. Uh, so this river blindness is reasonably well studied, but the the numbers vary between sixteen and nineteen million, um, but they're around. 200 million people who are at risk of, who live in the areas where this disease is spread. And it's actually a really interesting transmission cycle for this particular disease. So it's spread by a fly. The fly, uh, which is called a black fly, breeds in fast-flowing rivers. So its larvae need the oxygenated waters of fast-flowing rivers in order to grow. And once they they I don't know if fledge is the right word for a fly, I'm not an entomologist, but when they start to fly and they bite people, they'll take up some of the baby worms that are in the skin of the infected person and then within the gut of that fly, which is a, an obligatory part of the life cycle of onchocerciasis or river blindness, it's a particular um, quirk of it. It needs to be ha- have a, a period of time within the gut of the fly and then From there, it can transmit into an infected form into the next person. So people are constantly being bitten. They're constantly receiving um, new little baby worms that then will go on to potentially form adult worms, and on goes the infection.
0: It sounds, um, for our non-medical listeners and, and some of our medical listeners like me, like something out of a horror movie. It sounds absolutely awful. It is, and, it is. And moving on to another condition, Hansen's disease, leprosy, another of your area of interest. Many people may know nothing about it. I certainly know very little. Please talk to us about the disease and set the stage.
1: So Hansen's disease is probably more commonly known as leprosy. So leprosy has been with humans uh, Probably forever, and it's caused by a bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae, and it's one of the Mycobacterium family that also causes tuberculosis, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, so we've got a you know a a long history of association of being a um, a victim of the Mycobacterium family. It's a very slow-growing bacteria. Um, it's got some really interesting quirky characteristics it quite likes cooler parts of the body and it quite likes nerves and so it tends to um, infect those areas that are cooler such as the skin the nerves the eyes the lining of the nose those sorts of areas and it can attack those and you've you've got the the classic thing of this host and parasite or host infection response ongoing. This is battle that occurs over time. And it's actually the the host fighting with the bacteria over time that can cause a lot of the damage. It just basically causes the the changes that can happen in, in the tissues and the damage to those tissues. So there's a little bit of the pathogen causing problems and we as responding to that pathogen also causing problems. So there's around 250,000 people around the world who still suffer from leprosy. It is a very treatable disease. I think it's important to say that there are really good treatments for leprosy and it's no longer associated with uh, as much of the stigma as it used to have because we don't see it as much in certain parts of the world, but it's still pretty prevalent in some areas. and uh, And it's one of those issues that we think has gone away and yet it hasn't, it's still there it's still with us and it will probably always be with us despite the fact that we really do have some good treatments that treat the bacteria. One of the the unusual factors of mycobacterium infection is that you can treat the bacteria and clear the body of that particular bacteria, but it tends to leave little antigens, little parts of itself behind, and the body can continue to react to those, those antigens over time. And so what our treatment does, which is called, um, it's got a terribly catchy name of CC11050, um, which we have now got a, a, an official name for it. It takes time to get these official names. And that's now called Doramelast, which I'm not sure is any catchier, but nonetheless, that's the treatment that we're working with. So it's not moxidectin in this case, it's it's Doramelast. It's a drug that um, modifies the immune system and it treats the immune reaction that can happen, sometimes years after you've resolved the infection, you get a very debilitating reaction called ENL, erythema, nodosum, leprosum, or also known as leprosy type two reaction. And currently that's managed with steroid therapy, prednisolone, or in sort of fewer cases with thalidomide. And, and yes, thalidomide is still used, and it is used in the United States uh, and some areas in South America to treat this particular condition. And we're hoping to replace both the steroid therapy and the thalidomide therapy with our new treatment.
0: And I believe it can also be used for um, the other mycobacterium you mentioned, tuberculosis.
1: Yes, it is also in development for for mycobacterium tuberculosis. So, um, so we have a collaborative study that's ongoing at the moment looking at the role of this drug alongside of current antimicrobial therapies in the treatment of tuberculosis, which that's a very different proposition. You know, 250,000 people around the world have leprosy, but 10 million people currently have active tuberculosis. And really it's, I think the estimate is over 2 billion people are carriers of the, of the mycobacterium tuberculosis um, bacterium.
0: Yeah, and with um obviously with international travel being what it is, as we saw with the COVID nineteen pandemic, these have have passport will travel. Yes. So um so we've we've dug into some of the specifics. Let's broaden out a little bit. Um, and this might be a stupid question, but from a humanistic perspective, how can we better address ways to leverage the skill sets and ingenuity of richer countries and pharmaceutical Scientists to bring innovative medicines to treat the diseases of low and middle-income countries.
1: I think that that's a it's a great question, and it, for me, I feel like the the desire is there. The willing has always been there. People such as me who work in the pharmaceutical industry, people who are listening to this podcast working in healthcare, are passionate about making a difference in the world. It is the case, and I feel like there haven't been as many clear mechanisms for how you have input into that. How do you you address such an enormous problem as healthcare in low and middle income countries? And if you accept that this is a basic human right, access to healthcare is a fundamental human right. That's your underlying principle. You're going to try to find some way to to do it. You're going to try and find a, a solution. For us, we think we've got an example, but we've looked at it in a very narrow way based on the skill set that we have. Our capability as an organisation is to develop medicines. We have the machinery, the knowledge, the expertise to do that. It's a little bit like you know building a ship. It's sort of similar money to do a new drug as it is to build a cruise ship, and uh, and it's similar kind of you know complex, expensive, time-consuming thing that you are developing. And so we have the ability to, to do that. We have the ability to manufacture the, the product, to, to get it through the necessary processes. That's our skill set. And I feel that in the past, there haven't been enough mechanisms by which people can contribute to getting something to a patient. There have been lots of great ideas in a research setting. There have been really tremendous work done on the ground, groups like uh, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, who, who are out there distributing the drugs, um, sight savers. I mean, the, the list is enormous of, of great people doing great work. But the development piece, which sits in the middle, has been missing. It's been entirely reliant on industry and these product development partnerships to solve the world's problems. And I think that's an issue. So I feel like we're trying to, to put in place the change that we want to see, which is that we want to see development mechanisms to be able to address these healthcare needs, to develop new medicines, and uh, and it's it's doing nothing to build a new hospital or um, you know improve people's access to to that healthcare. But we can only do the parts that we are skilled at and capable of. And our skill and capability is in developing the product that then allows people to be able to treat a disease that was previously untreatable. So it's such a big problem. It's such a big mental mental process that you have to go through to think about how do I tackle this and if I distill it down I've tried to distill it down to the thing that we're good at and that is making the drugs
0: so I guess to stay on this topic a uh, given current medicine development infrastructure which you know you have work being done like in the United States on NIH funded and other government funded research programs in small small companies and universities and then sort of outsourced to industry, there's an obvious struggle when there's a clear public health need but no profitable market to offset the enormous expenditure. So how how do you go about tackling that issue? I mean, you're spending money. If you're not paid for the medicines you develop, take through uh, clinical trials and the regulatory process, that's unsustainable. How do you make it work
1: financially? It is the, the fundamental question of our field. If you look at how things are funded at the moment, the model is entirely driven by if I can make enough profit, if the drug is successful in making it all the way through, then I can reinvest that in further R&D and the next drug will come. In our field, that doesn't apply. So that's the, the great challenge. I think there are some solutions here. So some products will have dual market opportunities. They're not going to be massive blockbusters, but they will have a revenue generating opportunity. And I really have no hesitation in saying that rich countries like the one that I live in um, should pay more for its medicines if that enables others in lower and middle-income countries to be able to access those medicines. So I think there is an economic model here that can work that needs to be founded on health equity, which is enabling people to have access to medicines. And I think working with those dual market opportunities is really, um, for us, a a particular area of interest. Leprosy is one of those that is not a dual market opportunity. It's only a low and barely middle income, but mostly low income country disease. Uh, I mentioned before scabies and moxidectin. uh, We're working on the development of that. We see that as a dual market opportunity. That occurs anywhere in the world, all over the world. And I think... Uh, for richer countries, they'll be able to afford to to buy that medicine, and uh, and some of those profits will go back into providing the drug in lower income countries. So that's how we've started to tackle it. We also um, look for social impact investment to support our development work on the basis of a, potentially a future future market opportunity. And then there is another very complicated, and I won't um, spend a lot of time on it, but I will just mention. The US government has a program called the Priority Review Voucher, which is a scheme meant to support development of medicines for, for those very poor market opportunity diseases. And the Priority Review Voucher is a uh, quite a successful program and it enables us to raise money against the potential value of that voucher. So we've been funded in the past because of that. We've actually received a Priority Review Voucher and have been able to monetize that and that's what we're using to spend on our global health programs but we have enormous capital needs and we have you know the need to continue to expand that model and also to look at those more sustainable you know dual market opportunities as well
0: okay well that all makes perfect sense but what about the regulatory framework how how can that adapt to do better in this mission
1: yeah look to to be frank with you, the regulatory framework is a bit of a mess. It's a um, a very piecemeal uh, structure, and uh, the great challenge for a developer is differences in what regulators need from you. If you have a two hundred kind of you know different needs that you need to match, and I didn't pick that number out of the air, that, is a, that, that often happens where you have different advice and guidance. And particularly when you're working in low and middle income countries, each country will have its own perspective. So you're often trying to deal with a lot of questions and requirements from each of those. That inconsistency is very expensive and time consuming for us. People are quite shocked, but if a regulator asks us a question, we can't just sort of sit down and go, you know, quickly with back to them with an answer. You need to be considered. You need to provide evidence of that, requires analyses. It's actually quite an expensive process to go through. So this is an area that I think we really should be focusing on. How do we make this a more consistent um, approach? How do we not duplicate between different countries as well? And there is a, you know, on the regulations for clinical trials and how product development is done, there are worldwide regulations uh, which are given the acronym ICH and we all apply those and that's been incredibly helpful because that used to be different as well. But when you're going to a regulator with your final body of evidence and it's literally millions of pages of data that you go with, each one will have its own perspective about that body of data. They'll have its own set of questions and that's a that really slows the process down. And I think also maybe just one other Kind of editorial comment that they're largely uh, used to dealing with pharmaceutical companies with very deep pockets. And for us, it's just not possible if you have a, a particular requirement that's been put on you. Um, sometimes it will kill the program because you just simply cannot afford to do the work. So I think regulators are, are good at trying to help and trying to um, guide you particularly the very experienced ones. We work a lot with the, there are a group of regulators who are called stringent regulatory authorities. Uh, We work with them first because they have a lot more experience and they have the resources and the World Health Organization publishes that list of who they are. So we work with those as a priority. But when you're starting to work outside of that framework, you do end up with difficulty. I also think there's one area that regulators could help with which is in the way that approvals are done the bar to get an approval is incredibly high it's it's extremely difficult if I said to you that there's around 200 billion dollars spent just by the pharmaceutical industry on R&D each year it should be shocking and it is shocking because it's a vast amount of money but that particular you know sum is in contrast to around three and a half or four billion dollars spent on diseases of lower middle income countries And all of that money generates just 40 novel medicines per year. That's the average the FDA has been, US FDA has been approving over the past 10, 15 years, thereabouts. So a lot of money goes in to produce not many medicines. And I think we may need to look at the system of of how you get products onto the market. You need to protect patients. That's your first priority, of course but how do you get products onto the market, but control their use early on until you generate more real-world data? I'd be very keen to see that kind of approach of a more of a, a curated approach into the rollout of a new medicine in the field.
0: I am no whiz at mathematics, but if, uh, if I've done my, my sums correct, that means on average for every five billion, with a B, dollars uh, spent by the pharmaceutical industry, a new compound is approved by US FDA. That's, um, and I think it's it's really important for people to understand the process uh, that's involved in taking a drug from ideation to the market. Uh, someone once said to me, frankly, you're better off taking your money to Las Vegas than investing it in pharmaceutical development because the risks of not getting through the regulatory process are so high. And people's expectations nowadays, they want cures, but they don't want side effects. Uh, They don't want any risk. And, you know, I don't know how we met. I think that's something else that we need to manage frankly. So there have been successes in product development partnerships that you mentioned, PDPs, but this pales next to expenditure for diseases of high income countries. How do we solve that problem?
1: You know, I I think one of the things, you know, that that number, which is often published about how much it costs to develop a drug, people say, no, really, come on, it doesn't take that much. But actually, it does, because there's a lot of failures on the way. And and that's this, this question of how frequently products fail in development. People say, I'm in the clinic, and you're meant to get excited about that. But once you're in the clinic, you have a one in 10 chance of success. So once you're halfway through the clinical process, you're still under 50% chance of getting through. So I think you know those sort of um, statistics are important for people to, to be aware of and to know that you can't change a, a drug, a drug is a drug. Our job is to reveal the truth about that drug. And so uh, that's what we do um, for a living, we reveal all that we can about its characteristics, we can't change them. All we can do is show what they are and then a judgment has to be made about whether or not that's okay. I think this product development partnerships have been a wonderful innovation in trying to address these, these neglected areas, these diseases that are just not financially attractive. And they work with industry, they work with academia, That are a great group of organizations. Um, I think for me, one of the those fundamental things that's missing, and again, I've have a background of working in HIV, where as a very young scientist, I sat with my mouth open and my eyes opened at what difference a group of well-organized patients could make. To um, frankly, you know, I, I guess we had a lot to learn in how to involve patients and how to uh, engage with them and hear their voice and I learned a massive amount in that experience. If we had the voice of the patients who were affected by these diseases have an equal voice with all of us who have platforms, because we come from richer countries, I genuinely feel that this would not be even an issue, that that we would be uh, investing the right amount of money into these programs. And, uh, and I, I think that starting to hear those voices, starting to give those voices an opportunity to be heard would be a really great thing to do. I don't think we're going to fix any of this overnight. It's going to be a long-term process, but we need to look at more sustainable funding mechanisms for these types of programs. We all acknowledge that at the end of the day, we're not going to make any money out of it, but we're doing it because it's important. And some of these things do cross over into our world, our world of antimicrobial resistance being one of those. You know, that's an Armageddon that we all fear. And, and rightly so so I think that you know it isn't just a, a them and us uh, we're all humans we're all in this together and uh, and I think that we need to to have a bit of a, a brains trust uh, around this question of how do you fund these programs more sustainably you now I have to spend a lot of my life trying to raise money for the work that we do a lot of my team have to do the same and while we're doing that we're not doing the work so how do we make that more sustainable would be something i'd love to hear great ideas on uh, it would be a it would be a massive difference that we could make in the in the lives of so many people
0: well i guess that leads into my next question our, our audience consists largely of healthcare practitioners but we also have interested uh, lay folks listening how can our audience help you with your mission because It's a pretty damn noble mission.
1: This is a very important human problem. And the human problem is that we don't have the right drugs. We don't have all of the drugs that we need. We don't have great access to those drugs. We have a number of problems that are circulating around. And the people who are listening to this will be people who care about health, care about the impact of it interested in the science, all of those good things. I think that the the voice needs to be heard um, amongst this community and spreading the word that there's been a piece that's missing, really, really need to focus on the development piece. The research piece also needs funding, it can't be dropped, it needs to be supported. But research is not the same as development. Development is turning the idea into the product that's available in a pharmacy or being distributed in the field. That's the area that's been missing. It's because it's been missing from our thinking because it's been done by the pharmaceutical industry. We haven't had to worry about it. They're gonna work out how best to do it. But what we're saying is we've run that experiment. It hasn't, hasn't worked out for people who have diseases in lower middle-income countries. So that's something we need to sort. I'm happy to you know have provided one mechanism. It will not be the answer. There are others who are doing this I think have a look at the product development partnerships and see what they're doing. I think that's another way. I mean, I hate to be crass about this, but financial support is very, very helpful and well-received. Um, intellectual support is also incredibly well-received. We, we're happy to do the legwork, the, the heavy lifting for these things, but uh, we always need people who have great experience in pharmaceutical development uh, who have experience in the disease areas that we study to to work with us we always work collaboratively uh, so there's a lot that people can do but but a lot of it will be in that moral support and maybe a little bit of a little bit more than moral support in in what we're doing
0: well this is a wonderfully noble mission i remember visiting uh, an island in crete spina longa which has had many functions over the years but it was a a leper colony in um, uh, in bygone years and you think about the impact this disease has had on humanity and all the other things that you're addressing. So yeah, let's see what we can do to to help. And talking about helping and sort of aspirational things, Mark, if a genie popped out of a, a bottle you found on a beach and offered you three wishes to improve global healthcare, what would they be?
1: I think it's a, it's a great question. There's always a smarty answer, which is, you know, infinite. Infinite wishes would be your first one. The, the other in global health would be that we just simply resolve these diseases. But trying to, to put a little bit of practicality around this, you know, we see that at least part of this solution is providing the people who are out there distributing medicines, who are trying healthcare people who are out there trying to make a difference in people's lives to give them better tools. So. Um, so I think the mechanisms that we we need are uh, to um, to help that process. So probably one of the wishes I would go back to this question about a better voice for patients. we really did have the you know representing the eight billion ish people in the world and we had five of those people um, five out of eight billion people that we had one person per billion. We had five. People coming from low middle-income countries compared to the two or three people coming from the high income countries well we'd get an idea of how democracy maybe really should be working so I'd give a better voice to people from uh, impoverished backgrounds and disadvantaged communities um the, the second thing I guess um Diagnostics is an area that I'm really no no expert in. I have a lot of love for a good diagnostic, but I have no expertise at all in how you get them and how they arrive. There are some good groups out there, um, such as a group called Find and uh, another group in Seattle who work with the Gates Foundation on these sorts of things. Better diagnostics would be such a, a, a game changer in our treatment strategy, particularly in those difficult to reach communities where we're working at the moment the current strategy is mass drug administration so you go into the community all eligible people get treated and and then you leave if you had better affordable diagnostics you would be able to really target those people in the community who needed the treatment it would change a great deal I guess that maybe the third wish would be it is again, I'm sorry to be crass, but it is um, that we had a better financing mechanism for R&D in this area. You Know that the cost of a drug in an, a pharmacy in, in the UK, an excellent system, um, in the US people pay the full cost of a drug, which is the cost of the R&D, the cost of everything that failed in R&D, the cost to manufacture the drug and the profit. And so if you had a different funding mechanism That supported that R&D you could actually take out a couple of those equations because as a non-profit we don't need to charge a profit we do need to be sustainable we've got bills to pay so we just need to pay for the cost of the goods and we need to pay for the R&D and if we are able to do that then I think we would you know completely change the paradigm this is supplemental to the pharmaceutical industry it's not it's not in competition with it's actually different too. this is how we would Address those low middle income country diseases. So I would, my third wish would be a a, um, a solid, reliable funding mechanism that meant I didn't have to spend my life in an airplane uh, trying to raise capital.
0: Well, I think if anyone's going to get this uh, get this job done, it's you. I, I am enormously impressed at all you've achieved, and very grateful that that you're out there uh, fighting this noble fight. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Mark Sullivan, for sharing your wisdom with us. It's a pleasure to have you here. And again, thanks for everything you're doing.
1: Thanks very much, Jonathan. Absolute pleasure.
0: So folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode and maybe check out our archives and like us on social media. Also, please join us next week for another fascinating episode. And until then... I'm Dr. Jonathan here and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast And until next time, stay safe. Stay well, stay curious.
1: Bye for now.